Right, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start at verse 38. And um, last week was anger and lust. If you thought that was bad, this is far worse. Hang on. Here we go. What was Jesus thinking when he wrote this? I mean, let's face it. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Verse 43, you've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, when I read that, I wrote down this, Oh, Jesus, you were doing so well. But this is too much, surely. You know, I I get the love your neighbor part, but you want me to love my enemies? Are you crazy? If they slap me on the right cheek, right, the one I write with, I'm to turn to you the other cheek. I mean, why, why on earth would I do that? If they're persecuting me, I'm supposed to pray for them. What about socking them? You know, I quite like eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You know, forget Jesus' revolution. This is aberration. Talk about upside down. You know, in this passage, there's so much, so much in so little time. So I'll give you an idea of the journey we're going to go on this uh, morning, into this afternoon, into the evening, later tonight. But your kids will be fine upstairs. We'll feed them. We'll put them to bed. Don't you worry. The plan today, first of all, is to look at the challenge that Jesus issues. Because it's quite a steep one. I'm sure you'll agree. To look at the requirements that Jesus is calling for. To look at the difficulties we face as human beings. Look at the death that needs to take place. Look at what is it that needs to change. Then to look at the keys that will produce that change. And then finally, the benefits of living this way. We'll start with the challenge. And I say, to be fair, this is a really challenging and difficult text. And this will probably practically stretch us just about as far as it's possible to go. But for me, this is right at the core Right at the heart, right at the crux, this is the culmination of this whole sermon. R.T. Kendall describes it as as the highest peak. This is the Matterhorn 
of the Sermon on the Mount, get my mountains straight. It would also be fair to say without the lessons, without the principles of the rest of this message, without the heart surgery that takes place running through those beatitudes, this would be unattainable. And frankly, it would be unpalatable. And again, the message goes something like this. There is a new way. It's different. It's higher. This is how it works. This is how it is to work in my kingdom. See, this is next level stuff. This is talking about a righteousness that outclasses and outshines the very best that religion can offer. Last week, you know, murder, that's shocking, I know, but even anger is sin. Last week, the act of committing adultery, yes, is devastating, but even lust in your heart. Jesus is calling for a higher standard of righteousness. And this is called the love walk. And what Jesus is saying is, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how we do it. He said, I'm going to teach you some stuff right now that will probably blow your sensitive minds. And then I'm going to demonstrate it so powerfully, so compellingly, that it'll change the world forever. And you will never be the same again. He's saying, let's take walking in love to a whole new level. Way beyond what law can do way beyond what rules and regulations alone can do, way beyond good intentions, way beyond man's best efforts. So let's look at the requirements. What is it that Jesus is calling for us to do? Seven points. I'll go through them quickly. No comment. Not enough time. Number one, do not resist. Do not even resist an evil person. Number two, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer him the other one also. I say him because a lady would never do that. Number three, if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken, give them your coat as well. Or perhaps your fluffy woolly sweater, I don't know. Number four, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for one mile, carry it for two. Number five, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Number six, love your enemies. Number seven, pray for those who persecute you. That's quite the list. If I'm honest, that offends my thinking in many ways. And my mind, I don't know about you, but my mind automatically runs to exceptions and problems and reasons not to do that. You know, what if I'm sued and they're completely wrong? What if my enemy is trying to kill me? Am I just to turn the other cheek? No resistance at all? What if I've turned both my cheeks? Does it then become my turn? You didn't say that. You know, this is, this is new. This is radical and it sets a really high, hard standard. In fact, the last verse in chapter 5, it says, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is how true children of heaven 
are to act. We are to be perfect. Perfect means complete. It means mature. It means grown up. It means unwavering in integrity, even as your Father in heaven is all of those things. And this, I'm sure you'll agree, is quite the target. Let's talk about the difficulties for a minute. Do you know, revenge instincts, the desire for self-justification, urges to prove me right are very, very, very strong in us. Maybe I speak for myself. Now, I was deserving my children. Yes, I love my children. They get, too tend to get a bit of a bad rap on a Sunday morning because they're perfect example fodder. But I was watching them yesterday. My children, of course, are sweet and light until they don't get their own way. <laughs> then everything changes. A different instinct kicks in. The desire for revenge, the desire to be proved right, the desire to get my own way. It's strong inside all of us. The question is, how do you overcome that? How does that die in you? The answer, to be honest, is, in my experience at least, is slowly and painfully. And I would say this, this topic is, is hard for certain personality types. And I could probably go down the list of all the personality types that include everybody. But it's certainly really hard if, like me, you're a perfectionist. If you're a self-analyzer. If you have a jolly good reason for everything you do. If that's you you're going to really struggle with self-justification because it was intentional, I did it on purpose, I knew what I was doing, and now you're telling me that it's wrong. And if you're a perfectionist, you so want to be right, don't you? This stuff is hard. If you're a stewer, last week we talked about anger, we talked about stewers and spewers. If you're a stewer, you take things to heart. You ponder things long and hard and deep. And it can be very, very, very hard to let go. And Jesus is saying, let it go. If you're a spewer, if you're one who reacts, who lashes out, if that's you, more often than not, you engage your testosterone before your biblical principles. This stuff is hard for you. Now, I know you think that I'm mean. I know you think I've got it for you on a Sunday morning. But let me tell you this. It's harder for me because I have to think and process this stuff all week long. And every single week, I get tested, attacked, proked, and jabbed in these areas. So I'll come bear with you today. There was a situation that I had um, where, if I'm honest, I got myself a little defensive. Hard to believe, I know. And after this... I, I spent a few hours, you know, playing it around on my head, justifying everything. I was right, I think. They were wrong. They were unreasonable. And then as I kind of pondered it, because I'm a ponderer, I think the Lord whispered to my ear, Jamie, you are missing the point. You're fighting the wrong battle here. You know, you need to start to see the situation from my perspective. 
rather than man looking through his own eyes in the heat of the moment. Ouch, I said, okay, Lord. And then, it, then essentially I realised I could relax. And the reason I could relax is that God was capable of working tremendous good in that situation in spite of my reaction. Even if I hadn't handled it perfectly. If only I was prepared to trust him to do what he can do. And that, in many ways, is the crux of what this passage is all about. See, there's a principle, a clear biblical principle. You can read it in in Galatians chapter 6. We'll look at it in a second. That flesh responses yield flesh outcome. And spirit-led responses produce supernatural outcome. Galatians 6, I'm reading from the message, verse 7. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All I'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. The essence is if we, if we sow out of the flesh, if we sow out of our own selfishness, our own agendas, guess what? We will reap after that. We will get limited fleshly outcomes. If, however, what the message calls a crop of weeds, if we will sow to the spirit, if we will be spirit-led, if we will allow the Holy Spirit to be the seed, then there's a whole different ballgame. And Jesus is saying here that the flesh way of self-preservation, self-justification, of protecting self-interest can only produce flesh outcomes. So the question becomes, do you want to limit yourself to what you can do, what you can produce, or do you want to open yourself up to what God can produce? Do you want to live subject to your circumstances or do you want to live above your circumstances? Do you want your best or do you want God's best? And again, Jesus came to bring a revolution. He came to turn things upside down. He came to launch a new kingdom. He came to teach a new way with improved principles and higher standards. And the key is this all becomes possible because we are spirit-filled. It changes. Okay, so let's talk now about the death. Let's talk about what needs to die. See, we're kind of weaving our way on a journey here. Luke 9, verse 23, another verse we wish wasn't in the Bible, but it is. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You know I'm joking when I say wish it wasn't in the Bible. You understand that was tongue-in-cheek. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. If we want to be a disciple, if we want to be perfect, if we want to be mature, if we want to be fruitful, then a huge part of this is we must deny self. Selfishness must be tamed. The flesh must be starved. You know, it ceases to be about me 
because I have died. And hence we are called to take up our cross daily. What's cross all about? Cross is all about love, unconditional love, sacrificial love. It's all about grace. It's all about forgiveness. It's unearned. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. Actually, the cross is about injustice and suffering. You know, we may have to do a bit of that. We may have to bear a little bit of that, just like Jesus did. Jesus made that clear. In fact, every day we would have opportunities to do that. All of that is part of the dying to self, the part of the taking up the cross. Remember, and I, I've shared this with you before, Guy Chevreau's line from a message from last year about, you know, God, God, does God want us to be kinder or does he want us to be kind? And then there are a few spin-offs here. Does God want us to be more loving? or Does God want us to be more forgiving? Or does he want us to be unoffendable? And I pondered that and thought, you know, there are three words. The first word is unoffendable, which according to my Microsoft, actually is not a real word, but bear with me. Unoffendable. Number two is unoffending. And number three is inoffensive. You know, I hope that we're inoffensive. I mean, there are no prizes for being objectionable. We will never be entirely unoffending. You know the line, you can't please all of the people all of the time. Actually, Jesus offended people quite often. He was actually quite good at it. And in fact, trying to be unoffending is dangerous because the fear of the Bible says that fear of man is a snare. If you live your life trying not to offend anybody, you'll get yourself in a bind. The desire, what we're looking for, is to be unoffendable. This is tough stuff. In other words, it doesn't matter what they do, how they do it, how much it hurts, you relinquish the right to be offended. You give up the need to win, however you define the word win. And in fact, you just don't let that seed in, that seed of offence. You don't even give it the soil to land in. The desire is to be unoffendable. I love this line, it haunts me. It comes back to get me over and over again. I see situations and I'm reminded, Jamie, unoffendable. This stuff should be washing off you like water off a duck's back. If you are mature, if you want to walk in the spirit, if you want to be a kingdom walker, you need to be unoffendable. You can't allow all this stuff to grab a hold of you. This is next level. This is kingdom. This is stepping over into the realm, actually, of the supernatural. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. We sang it, didn't we? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Love never fails. Now, I'm not sure how we define success or failure. That's a whole other question. But in God's economy, he's always looking for opportunities to turn evil to good. Redeeming cursing into blessing. 
to counter aggression with love, to tweak a demand into an act of service, to change persecution into a prayer campaign. This week, I was watching the Bible with my kids. We recorded it. We're a few weeks behind, and we were just leading up to Jesus' arrest. And uh, they make quite a big deal of Malchus having his ear cut off, which if you were Malchus, that would be a big deal. Um, and in fact, they introduce the character running in, and you know, he gets into a few dialogues. And actually, the only thing we hear about Malchus really is having his ear chopped off and Jesus healing him. You know, I thought, you know, isn't it amazing how Jesus responded in that situation? You know, if that had been me, and I'd been the sinless son of God, it's quite an imaginative stretch for me, that. I'd have been whining. <laughs> I'd have been protesting. I'd have been resisting that arrest. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus saw an opportunity for redemption. He stretched over, touches Malchus' ear, and it heals it instantaneously. Made me think, you know, from Malchus's perspective, what did that do for the next 24 hours of his life as he's trying to fathom all of this? I've got some other, a couple of other great illustrations of how, how if we allow offence to get in, if we walk in the old ways, in the flesh ways, we limit so much what God can do. There's a story told by Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth was a giant, an apostle of the faith um, from this country, you know, very w widely regarded, spoken of across the world. And the story goes something like this. He was a plumber. And his wife was the spiritual one. Perhaps no surprises there. Anyway, um, Mrs. Wigglesworth started getting hungry for God. And so she announced that not only was she going to go to church on Sunday morning, but she was going to go to church on Sunday evening. I'm going to talk about hungry for God. This, however, did not impress Smith Wigglesworth, who was frankly not interested. And he said to him in typical brash northern English, Woman, if you go to church... I'm going to lock this door and I'm not going to let you back in. You've got to decide. Is it them or is it me, your loving husband? Okay, so here's make or break moment. Smith Wigglesworth's wife goes to church, bolts the door, locks the door, shuts it, that's it. That's the end of her. Mrs. Wigglesworth comes home from church, knocks on the door, tries to get in, can't. So she sleeps on the front doorstep. In the morning opens the door. What are you doing there, woman? Good morning, Smith, she says. In she comes, what would you like for breakfast? And just carries on as if nothing had happened. Well, I mean, that one seed changed that man's life. That is why he got to where he got. I have a friend of mine who tells a similar story. His name's John Trotter. He's from Apsley, Ontario. He's a bit of a Redneck, probably, if I'm honest, but a really fiery man of God. And his dad was a pastor, and he was a bit of a wild child. And on one occasion, his dad was trying desperately to sort of draw John into things of God. He said, we're going to a pastor's conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Would you mind driving us down? So he and two or three of his friends, fellow ministers, giants, holy men, were going down to Tulsa. John was driving. Got to the first night. Coming to the meeting, John, no thanks. Okay. Comes back late right in front of his father's friend. So where have you been, John? 
I went to the strip club, Dad. <laughs> Desperately trying to embarrass his father in front of, you know, his most respected friends. And I remember John tells us all with a tear running down his cheek. He said, my father looked at me and said, well, do you know what? You're my son, and I just love you. Uh, you know, 10 out of 10, I don't think I'd have reacted like that. Hopefully, I'm never, that button is never pushed. But you know what? John tells that story. That was the moment that his heart broke. And he realized there's a different way. And he saw how God had changed his father's heart. And of course, he's saying, that's what I need. So here's the, here's the big idea. And it goes something like this. What we have to do is we have to let go of our pride. What we have to do is we have to waive our right to revenge. That's hard. What we have to do is we have to totally die to self. Because when we do that, what we do is we step across into the supernatural. Then we step across into a real, radical, powerful kingdom living what we would call the love walk. Let go of our pride, wave our rights to revenge, die to self in order that we can step over into the supernatural. This is the standard Jesus set, and this is how he lived. We know the story, Philippians 2 verse 5, how he laid aside his glory and majesty. He gave all that up. He gave, that, he gave up his his omniscience, he gave up his divine privilege and power. He came to the earth. He was born in a stable, in the muck, in the mire. He grew up in obscurity. And then in his ministry, he gave and he gave and he gave. You know, Jesus let himself be arrested. He said nothing at all at his trial and he forgave them from the agony of the cross. No, the ultimate act of self-denial, the crucifixion, opens the way for a surge of supernatural resurrection power. The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. He gave up his life willingly. They mocked him and said, call down the angels, Jesus, to pull you off the cross. And Jesus could have done that in a heartbeat. He chose self-denial. And that crucifixion opened up the supernatural. You know, these demands are daunting. The standards are super high. The question then becomes, how do we, you and I, step from the limitations of our imperfect human love, because I can't do this myself, I don't know about you, from the foibles of my own personality, and I have them just like you, from the hurts and hang-ups that we wrestle with. How do we step from that into becoming a vessel that God can use to release life-changing love like a flowing tap? Because that's what we're talking about here. How do I step from human love to divine love? How do I step from his way, my way to his way? How do I step from flesh the spirit. And I think there are two keys to this. You might argue there are more, but I'm just going to look at two today. And the first one is, and we will only get there if we grab a hold of these two keys. The first one is, 
His agenda trumps your agenda. And number two is, his love supersedes your love. It's as long as you're trying to do it your way, for your reasons, in your strength, you will never pull this off. So let's look at those two just briefly. Number one, his agenda trumps your agenda. Let me ask a couple of questions to which you probably know the answer. Who's the real enemy? What's the battle that we're trying to win? In that confrontation, how does Jesus see that person? You see, Jesus looks through a different lens to us. He proved it. When Jesus sees someone, he sees a person that he died for. You know, Jesus is saying, you know, I love, to coin a modern phrase, I love furiously. You know, I love, in, I love them in spite of what they're doing, in spite of what they're saying, in spite of how they treated me. Jesus proved that. You know, we read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, talks about how Jesus, you know, seeing, seeing the goal, was able to ignore the mockery and the shame and press on to do what God the Father had called him to do. Jesus looked at the crowd, Matthew chapter 9, and I don't know what the disciples saw, an irritable bunch of people who wanted feeding. Jesus said he saw those people like sheep without a shepherd. They were helpless and harassed, and his immediate thought is, you know, the field is ripe for harvest. You know, just pray that God will send laborers. Jesus saw differently to us. We need to see that same way. I think Jesus is saying that I would go to unending lengths for these people. Now it's your turn. What lens do we see through? Situation, I was uh, on the highway from my home to the airport in Toronto with a passenger. And like all good Canadians, we stopped for Tim Hortons halfway coffee, if you don't get that, coffee and donuts. And, and I was in with this person, I won't tell you who they were, and we came to ordering, and there was a, a young lad at the till with, you know, Tim Horton's trainee written on his badge. And this poor kid was nervous. He, I think he probably had some mild learning difficulty. He was stuttering, he was stumbling. You know, we just about got the order in and the money and the whole thing, got in the car, and my... my Travelling companion tastes their coffee and it got sugar in it. I mean, honestly, sugar in coffee, why would you do that? You know, it's like putting ketchup on a prize steak. It's like having crumble without ice cream. You just don't do it. And the person who was with me kind of looked at me and said, there's a surprise, they look like a bit of a loser to me. And something inside of me died. I thought, how could you be so cold and callous? I was seeing this poor lad. It was probably his first day. Might have been his first job. He was so struggling, and so he got it wrong. And, and I, see, I felt a different surge. You know, because I'd have been tempted to think that too. I mean, let's face it, sugar and coffee. But I saw this guy, and I could see through the father's eyes, and I could feel God's heart melting for this young man. So... Again, questions like this, what do you see? 
in the heat of the battle, what are the thoughts that are raging and dominating? Whose agenda is in play? Again, there needs to be a crucifixion before there can be a resurrection. Our agenda has to die so that his agenda can burst into life. As a rule of thumb I read, R.T. Kendall, always treat enemies in such a manner that should you win them over, they will salute and applaud your Christ-like behaviour in those tense and difficult times. You know, the aim is not to prove people wrong. The aim is not to win the argument. Being right is overrated. Actually, the aim is to win people to Christ. The aim is to point people to Jesus. The aim is to take anything standing in the way of them and the Lord out. At the end of the day, what is more important your personal victory or their eternal destiny? What is more important, your pride or their heart? And we're honest, this is tough stuff. For this to, to happen, I have to fall in love with Jesus. I have to become so awed with who he is. I have to be so captured by his call. In that song that we sing, Father, break my heart for what breaks yours. And this stuff is the real deal. This is the test of maturity. This is the goal for which we're aiming. And I just say, kind of humbly, Lord, do it in me. My agenda might die, but his agenda might burst to life. The second one is that his love supersedes your love. If I'm honest, in my strength, I just cannot pull this off. I can't. I'm too selfish, too competitive. My love just isn't strong enough. But his is. And therefore, his objective is to get his love into us so that he can get his love through us. And in many ways, this is the key to it all. You see, essentially, you cannot give what you do not have. Until you have received love, you cannot give it. Until God's love has changed your life, you cannot expect it to change your circumstances. Until grace has taken over your relationship with God, it will not dominate your relationship with others. What we need is a deep revelation of the Father's heart. What we need is for his love to penetrate deep enough into us to really radically make a difference. To the point where God's love is the well within from which we always draw. To the point where we can turn off our tap and turn on his. That we can turn off the frustrations, we can rise above the disappointments, we can let go of that right for revenge, and we can turn on compassion. We can turn on the fruit of the Spirit. We can turn on that evangelistic passion. 
this receiving of, this revelation of the Father's heart is a life-changing, powerful message. In fact, I feel a new series coming on. Maybe not now. Okay. Let's look at the benefits of this now. If only we could do that. Remember that if we can let go of the pride, if we can waive our rights for revenge, if we can die to self, and if we can start to do it Jesus' way, start to love those enemies, start to bless those cursing us, start to pray for those persecuting, start to turn the other cheek, then what we are doing is we're stepping out of that, we're stepping into the supernatural. And that changes everything. Because God can do so much more than we can. And if we're prepared to go upside down, and if we're prepared to step across into the supernatural by turning the other cheek, by loving, by praying, by blessing, we open the door to what God can do rather than limiting ourselves to what we can do. And I put in brackets in my notes, in my case, what I can do is not very impressive, if I'm honest. But in God's case, what he can do is unlimited. May take longer, may look different, but it will definitely be better. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you know what the best way to resist the devil is? Answer, love your enemy. Loving your enemy slams the door shut to his entire operation. Reminds me of a coaching tip I had from my hockey coach who played for Great Britain, a couple of Olympics. He knew what he was talking about. And what he said was, you know, if, if when you dispossess someone in hockey, you've now got the ball and they haven't, you know what they've got? They've got the red mist. The best thing you can do, and it's a great principle, take the ball and just ship it. Just pass it 20 yards over there. And they have this huge deflation. Ugh, I wanted to get it back and it's gone. And that, I think, is what we're talking about. Rather than playing into the enemy's hands, because we know what his game is, we know what he's trying to achieve, just deal with it, just get rid of it. Just take it completely out of play. Reminds me of a little verse in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, which is right in the middle of a... The context of this passage is about forgiveness. And it says, blah, blah, blah. It says, in order that Satan might not outwit us. And then it says, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Folks, we are not unaware of his schemes. We've banged our heads against the brick wall. We've fallen at the hurdle. We've tried to do it our way. We've recognized how limited we are. Don't let the enemy outwit us. Why is it that Jesus calls us to love our enemies? Why is it that Jesus calls us to bless people when they curse us? Why is it he calls for us to pray for people when they're persecuting us? Because he knows that that will ensure our victory. It's a Nelson Mandela quote. Can't have a sermon these days without a Nelson Mandela quote. If you hate, you give your enemy your heart and your mind. Don't give the enemy these two things. And we're called, aren't we? Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. And if we will step across into these principles, what we've done is we've put that filter across our heart. This stuff kills off any bitterness, any resentment. 
You know, the fire cannot continue to burn if you stop throwing logs on it. It dies. This stuff will completely diffuse the fear of man. Because what God thinks becomes so much more significant than what they think. And once again, the big idea is that if we will allow God to work his so much more because you've stepped over into the supernatural. Final example, and I'm going to give you a challenge. I'm just going to read this statement. I hope you know the story. You know the story of Stephen? Stephen was the first Christian martyr, and the story is that they're ready to stone him. He's a young man of God. He's, he's done miracles. He's, you know, he's grabbed the apostle's mantle, so to speak. He's doing wonderful things. Anyway, they, they corner him. The persecution started. They're lined up with their rocks. He tells this incredible, he gives this incredible gospel message, talks through the history of the Old Testament, how God's been working and bringing the Messiah in, and says his face was shining with the glory of God. And then he says those immortal words, doesn't he? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Copied Jesus. And they stoned him. They killed him right there. And I wrote this. Was it Stephen's gracious prayer that knocked Saul of Tarsus off his high horse? The thing is, Stephen prayed this amazing prayer. Standing there watching was Saul of Tarsus. Saul the Pharisee holding the coats on his arm, egging and cheering them on. And I wonder that while they were persecuting him, Stephen prayed, they stoned Stephen, but I wonder if God answered that prayer. I wonder if it's the seed that Stephen sowed that produced that extraordinary supernatural scene where the blinding light comes on Saul on the Damascus road and throws him off his horse. Maybe God answered that prayer. Perhaps not in the way that Stephen anticipated. I don't know. But think about the result. Think about the multitudes that were saved through Paul the Apostle's ministry. Think about the continent, continents impacted. Think about the churches that were planted everywhere. Think about the fact that half the New Testament was written quite possibly because of that prayer that Stephen prayed. Don't hold it against them, Lord. And as Stephen did that, he stepped across. I don't know what I'd have been like. I'd have been ranting and raving, and I don't know what I'd have been doing. But he stepped across into the supernatural, and he planted a very different seed. And Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, if you sow to the Spirit, if your decisions are Spirit-led, then you reap a supernatural harvest. And it's very different question again becomes, what can God do? What could God do in our lives, in our hearts, in our circumstances, in our disagreements, if we were to do it his way? Wonderful question. Can I leave you with a challenge? Time's up. Two challenges for you this morning. First one is this. Do you want to step over into the supernatural? Do you want to go to the next level? Do you want to go from flesh to spirit? Do you want to go from kingdom of the earth to kingdom of heaven in the way you live and the way you act? I do. I do. I have successes. 
they're glorious. I have failures, inglorious, as we all do. If you want to step over into that, I just, as we respond this morning, just say, invite God in. Invite him in. Ask God to take you to the next level. And be warned that if you do, that's a dangerous prayer because you will be tested to see how you do. That's how faith grows. Pray something like this. Father, do whatever you need to do in me so that you can do whatever you long to do through me. This is the culmination of this sermon. This is where Jesus is headed. This is what he's aiming for. This is what kingdom supernatural living looks like. This is where the fruit of harvest is to be found. Ask him in. Dangerous prayers. Ask him in. Response number one. Number two is, are there any circumstances in your life that you are facing right now that require a change of approach? Again, as we respond, we worship just for a few minutes and we just say, Lord, come and show me. I've got this challenge. I've got this issue. I've got this relationship breakdown. Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to do different? What do I need to do to step out of what I can do into what you can do? To step out of the flesh and into the supernatural. I'd encourage you to pray that as we worship and just say, Lord, just show me. One whisper. What do I need to do? Just convict my heart and show me if there's anything that needs to be done. Is that okay? Last Mark to come forward. We've got about 10 minutes until the kids are ready. So I'm going to pray. Then we'll open up the, the floor for ministry. We'll worship for a few minutes. And then we will drink coffee with or without sugar. <laughs> That's up to you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're honest. We read this stuff and it's tough. We're honest, we've made mistakes, we have strong instincts inside of us, probably, Lord, that still need to die. So it's a fairly simple prayer, Lord, today, and that is an invitation for you in. Lord, we recognize that things in us need to die. We recognize probably that new seed needs to be sown. And Lord, we just ask you to come do it. Come do whatever needs to be done. Come renew our thinking. Come change our attitudes. Come heal our hearts. Come and show us, Lord, your agenda. Come burn your cause in us so we get it. So our heart becomes aligned with yours. And perhaps most importantly of all, Lord, come and fill us with your love. My love is limited. My love is not enough. But there's something amazing when your love flows through us. Where we become a vessel that you can use. Where it's no longer our imperfect love that's coming out, but it's your compassion. It's your grace. It's your word. It's your love. That is the love that never fails. That is the love that is perfect. And God, we need it. But Lord, we cannot give what we do not have. So Lord, we just open our hearts, we raise our hands, close our eyes, say, Lord... We pray for that deeper, fresh revelation. We took communion this morning. Lord, it's great. Exactly what did Jesus do? Exactly what does that mean for me? Exactly how does that change who I am? How does that change how I see myself? 
And hopefully, how does that change how I live? So Holy Spirit, we give you the next few minutes. We recognize that one whisper of your breath is infinitely more powerful than 45 minutes of my preaching rambling. And I just pray, Lord, that you would whisper in our ears this morning, this afternoon. Come and show us, Lord, what it is we need to do. Lord, we give you these next few minutes. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I'd like to ask you to stand, if that's okay.